everybody. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. Today on the show, I had the privilege of speaking to paramedic educator and host of the Medic Mindset Podcast, Ginger Locke. Um, this is a longer episode than some of the shows we've done previously, but there's a lot of good stuff in it. Um, I was really happy to talk to her. We went over a whole lot of different things about how to teach and how to learn. Um, if you haven't listened to her uh, her podcast, it's linked in the show notes. It's the Medic Mindset Podcast. It was a great interview. Um, so without further ado, here's Ginger. Right on the line with me, I have Ginger Locke from the Medic Mindset Podcast. Ginger, thank you for joining me. Thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. You guys have just hit the ground running with this podcast. I we we're trying, you know. Um, so what I want to talk to you about today, we're going to talk about uh, education and EMS and how to kind of change the way that we teach um, and to get, and maybe ch- change the focus on how we actually teach. So one of the things that I've heard you talk about in your show, and for our listeners, if you haven't heard the Medic Mindset podcast, you have to get on that. It's one of my favorite podcasts out there. Um, something that you've, you've mentioned a couple times that really kind of hit home for me is that when you're actually taking a test, it's okay to get it wrong uh, in a testing station. And I want to talk about that a little bit because I think one of the things that a lot of our students are concerned about is certain types of failure or how often they fail a station. Right. So as long as you're in a safe learning environment and you've got people kind of on your same team, you know, teachers and learners are all on the same team. The idea of failing, you know, in practice or even in a testing environment um, in the educational environment should be completely acceptable and just an understood like part of the process. And so, um, when you when you look at the literature, there's a wonderful woman named um, Carol Dweck who wrote a book called Mindset, okay. and she talks about this. She talks about the idea of um, understanding that failure is part of the process and that we should not be too attached to you know early success as like an indication of our self worth or something <laughs> like that. So when I, and you mentioned this in, in one of your most recent episodes where Carol Dweck talks about the difference between a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. Um, what do you think she actually means by that and how does that affect our educators and the students? Well, she was looking at it from a perspective of that learners come to a educational environment with an attitude and the attitude or their approach about kind of how they think abilities exist. And some people think, especially adults, think that they're abilities are fixed. It's something they were born with or, you know, it's these inherent qualities and things like even like artistic ability are growable. And we really think, you know, that's just like said, I'm either an artist or I'm not, (laughs) you know, Um, and everything is actually um, with focused kind of deliberate practice and a good coach by your side. Uh, There's really nothing you can't learn. That's that's a growth mindset is that you truly believe you can grow your brain much like you grow a muscle. Mm hmm. Well, and that's something that applies. We have a lot of like non-traditional learners that tend to enter EMS either coming out of you know whatever schooling they went to or they're looking for a career change. And I think it's something that's kind of hard to reinforce where I think sometimes as educators, we get into a position where if you've been doing this for you know, 10, 15 years, it becomes kind of second nature to you and trying to explain to a student like, well, it's okay that you don't get it right the first time. You've been doing this for two days. I've been doing this for 20 years. Mm-hmm. I, I say this phrase a lot. I'll tell them, why would you be good at that? Like what what in your, you know, the last 20, 30 years have you done that would make you good at laryngoscopy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we have people who have been doing it for 20 years who aren't great at it anyways. So. <laughs> yeah. So and talk to me about adding the word yet uh, when you're giving constructive feedback to a student as opposed to just saying, you know, or, or even just talking to yourself when you're going through a class, say you, you know, you're going through a laryngoscopy station and you didn't do particularly well. 
So this is a um, tip again, trying to, if you recognize that a student is in a fixed mindset, slowly trying to um, change their attitude about learning. And this is just a simple tool that you can use when you hear this kind of negative self-talk or these um, scripts that people play. Some Usually most of it's internal scripts, but occasionally they'll say it out loud and that's your chance to reframe the script. Um, they might say, I'm, I'm not good at IVs, right? And um, you and I both know that you, anyone can be good at IVs. I could go find anyone out right. on the street today and by the end of today, give I me a week. I will teach how to do it. <laughs> we'll be good at it. So, um, as a preceptor, as an educator, if you can just look at them and say, yet, you know, you're, you're not good at IVs yet, right? And it reminds them that you've got, um, we've got work ahead of us, but um, it's not a fixed ability. You're not either, you know, born able to or not able to start IVs. It's, and again, it is something I think that comes with, with good teaching and with good practice. Um, you've also talked a little bit about the 10,000 hour rule. Um, that uh, Anders Ericsson talked about. And so talk about, talk to me a little bit about that and the difference between uh, experience and expertise and how they're separate, uh, I guess, in practice or in education. Sure. So you've heard the, the phrase, let me make sure I get it right. The phrase is um, practice makes perfect. Um, and I've heard other people say, or try to switch that saying to practice makes permanent. And so experience just means uh, you've logged hours. You know, you're just doing the same thing over and over and over again. Um, but unless that practice is deliberate and you, and here's the key element, you have an expert coach by your side um, to, to guide that practice. Um, we're really not sure that we're going to get to expertise unless we have a, a second party there giving us that feedback. Anders Ericsson mentioned the 10,000 hour rule and peak is the name of the book. And, um, the popular media have just hooked onto this 10,000 hour rule and said, Hey, just do anything for 10,000 hours and you, you can become an expert. And it's, it's not exactly that. It's more do 10,000 hours of work with some feedback. Right. And the, the deliberate practice is doing something on purpose and kind of looking back at what you did, what you did right, what you did wrong, what you can change, which I tend to think that in our education culture, there's somewhat of a gap where we'll have someone who says, you know, well, I've been doing this for 20 years, so I know what I'm doing, but it's entirely possible that you've been doing it wrong for 20 years, or you run into a frustration where you have a student who can't do things to the level that you've been doing it when they've been doing the same skill for say a month. Right. So it is a combination. I mean, we, you need time, but then you also need time with feedback. And we could talk about feedback. Feedback is was a big topic that we talked about at the EMS World Expo Conference, where I just I just attended and I taught a pre-conference class with some other wonderful med medical educators. And feedback was a topic of that pre-conference class. So I'd love to um, talk to you about what I learned. Yeah, that that'd be great. Let's get into that. So how are there more effective ways to give feedback aside from just seeing the student do something and say you did this right, you did this wrong? Hmm. <laughs> I, I, love the, I love the long pregnant pause. Like that's such a vague question. I, I, I no, know, no, no, I, it's not a vague question. I'm wondering it. You know, it it depends. Some students will respond to just a simple "Don't do it this way, do it this way," and that's all you have to do. And there's really no kind of um, nuance to it. But then other learners, if you really want to reach all learners, 
um, these are these are tips that some of the tips that I got um, because you have to customize our feedback to each individual, just like you would customize, you know, how you interact with every single patient. You have to customize how you interact with every single learner sure. and kind of um, get us learn how they communicate. There's a book um, called Thank You for the Feedback. And in that book, uh, the two authors talk about before you give feedback, okay, so before you're even going to give the feedback, first, you want to make sure that the person wants feedback, right? So when it's a formal educational environment, we assume that and we kind of skip that step because we assume, okay, they're, they've paid their tuition, they're here to learn. Right. Um, but with our colleagues, with our peers, you, you do want to make sure that they are desiring the feedback because they may not. Um, the, the first, so there's four questions to kind of ask yourself before giving the feedback. The first is ask yourself, is the feedback necessary? And that means, let's say you've just run a scenario, a learner through a scenario or a whole call, like your field preceptor. Right. You could give feedback on every single little thing. You could, you know, you could have 20 points of feedback. Um, but all of that, you should really trim it down to three to five takeaways and, and leave out the rest because um, it's not, it may be important to give the feedback, but it's just not necessary. They're going to get lost. They're going to get lost in all of that. You know, what's the important part and, and pick that point out. So if, instead of giving, do you find that the if you were giving, let's say, like twenty points of feedback, that it's um, it's more of a kind of negative reinforcement that's not really necessary, and you're kind of just breaking down, kind of point by point, or is there anything to say, like you know, find positives um, amongst the negatives, or is it just say, you know, we found these three things and we want to change these these three things for this particular patient? The feedback could be positive or negative. That's fine. It could be, um, but I would limit the amount. And what you limit it to is ideally if you're doing deliberate practice, you've gone into that call or that gone into that scenario with a pre-brief, right? We talk about debriefing a lot, but do, we've got to remember the pre-brief where we tell the learner on this call or on this scenario, I want you to pay especially attention to these three things, you know, how you are um, placing your EKG, what your radio report looks like, and you know, pick a third option. And then at the end, you talk about those three things because to just critique a call play by play at the end, just it gets ad nauseum and right. they kind of get overwhelmed by that. Um, so pre-brief and debrief, three to five things that they're really focused on for that call as they're learning. Okay. All right. So that's our first thing. You said there were there were four items. Yeah. So the first, the first thing was just making sure – you're giving um, necessary feedback. Just pick out with the key stuff. The second thing is, ask yourself, is this the right time to do it? So right after a call, when those hormones are still flowing, when we're, we're like, we're all kind of ramped up, the teacher and the learner, right? We're, we've, um, we're still sweaty. That might not be the right time. They may need a little processing time. You may need a little processing time as the, as the person who's gonna give feedback. Um, so delaying that feedback, you know, three to five minutes may be helpful. So ask if it's the, ask yourself it's if it's the right time for you and for the learner. The third thing is is this the right place, right? It, if you give feedback in the ER with 
lots of distractions. You've just run a call, you know, and you're, um, there's a lot of like ambient noise that might not be the right geographical location, the right place. It might be better until you, you know, you can get back in the kind of the safety of the truck. You've got good eye contact, you have their full attention. Um, and you can just sit in the back for, you know, a couple of minutes and give them feedback there. So think about the location. Mm -hmm. And in general, it's kind of understood that usually private feedback is desirable over public feedback. Um, but sure. that's not always that's not always you know required. It's just you the usual preference of a typical learner would be for private feedback. And then the fourth thing is ask yourself as the teacher, am I in the right frame of mind? So sometimes we have high hopes for our our students' performance. We right. you know we really hope it goes well. We think they're on track and they underperform. And so we take an emotional hit. Um, and so if you can, Make sure you're in the right frame of mind before giving feedback yourself. So, and that's that's an interesting point because I think as educators we tend to kind of fall into the trap of, like I said, like putting up high expectations for a student and then somewhat taking it personally when they don't perform to the way that we want them to every single time. So, something that, at least in my, in my experience, there's been conversations amongst preceptors and educators is kind of checking your ego when working with a student or when teaching with a student. And I'm wondering what your opinions are on that. Sometimes I, this may not be exactly where you're going with it, but I just try to think about, you know, to, to get out of that moment, I'll think about what's our long range goal. And I'll talk to the student and I'm kind of talking to myself, but I'll say, you know, in a year where our long range goal is, we're trying to get you here and just reminding them and yourself, we can only work on this one piece at a time and not think about it too globally because it can get pretty overwhelming to watch someone struggle through that process. I mean, becoming a paramedic or in your case in med school, becoming a physician, um, I can't speak from personal experience, but becoming a paramedic, that's a jack of all trades. I mean, the things that they right. have to, the communication, the psychomotor skills, the quick decision making, that the analysis of data, the technical expertise along with the human element, it's a special person to be able to kind of build all that. And it takes time. Well, absolutely. And I think, and this is, again, talking, you know, if you've been in the field for, you know, 10, 15 years and you get a chance to be a preceptor, I think it's, it's really easy to forget what being a student is like, especially if you're someone who, you know, if you went to medical school or sorry, if you went to medic school in, you know, 1990, the, the change in practice since then has been logarithmic, you know, so you have people who, when they went through school, things might not have been as difficult, but now they're in a situation where like you go through EMT or medic school and we're teaching you data, we're teaching you, you know, 12 leads, which weren't in a lot of medic schools until, you know, the early two thousands. Um, you know, different drugs that are out there that are kind of, you know, new to EMS, you know, ketamine, TXA, things like that. So I think it's difficult to remember, you know, there was a time where I was a student and I, you know, underperformed or I didn't know how well I was doing, um, which I think is important for educators to keep in mind. It's just not something that I think we're terribly good at. I think uh, really the crux of what you're talking about, that's empathy. So to be able to remember your emotional state as a student is really hard. And in the talk that I did at EMS World Expo, I kind of started off the talk by by talking about attaching a laryngoscope blade to its handle. Like if I just handed those two objects to you, they would go together without you even thinking about it. You wouldn't even necessarily even having to look at them. Like you would just put them together and move on and you wouldn't think about that step. 
a learner, if I hand those two things to them, they may put the they may put the handle in the, the wrong hand, right? They're going to probably put it in their dominant hand, not the left hand. Right. The blade can go on wrong, right? It's just going back and remembering like step by step by step. Like I had to learn every single one of these steps in order to it be, for it to become this fluid. Right. And that's the thing is that it takes, you know, and like I said, we, you know, we know what to do and we get so so seasoned and experienced with it and then you have someone who it's their first day on the truck especially if they're an emt student because there's a lot of programs where the emt students might only be on the truck for six hours throughout their entire experience and that might be the only time they've ever been on an ambulance so we kind of take things for granted where it's like well i know what to do so why don't you so one of the things that and again you've talked about this previously is if you're in a situation that you see a, a learner or a student do something and it kind of confuses you or you don't really understand why they did it. Taking the time to ask the patient or ask, ask the student why they did a skill without actually kind of coming down on them and asking them why. So what would be a better way to approach asking a student why they did a skill or why they didn't do a skill as opposed to just kind of coming up in their face and saying, why did you do that? Right. The word why, um, most like, family therapist or couples therapist would tell you, like, try to avoid the word why, because usually we know we're being accused of something or we interpret it that word that way. It's kind of a dirty word. People don't respond well to it. Instead, if you can just express your curiosity by saying, you know, I noticed that you did this, what were your thought processes before that? Or what were, um, what, what thoughts led you up to that decision? <laughs> it's just a, um, a subtle change that you can make um, that will keep them open because you're expressing curiosity instead of judgment. Yeah. And I, again, I, that's an important thing where I feel like when you ask someone, why did you do X? It kind of comes across as, I don't know that condescending is the, is the right way to say it, but it comes across as more of a negative criticism than it's supposed to be, where it might just be, you know, a simple question, you know, even something that you as a, as a preceptor educator didn't think about. Um, and this goes the other direction too. So, because I experienced this once, I watched a emergency physician um, do something on a clinical. I was the preceptor, and I was really just curious why they chose to do something. I'm like, teach me. I, right. I'm genuinely curious why you did it that way. Um, but I, and so I asked, why did you shock at that jewel setting instead of this? And the response I got, I could tell was from a place of like feeling defensive. Mm -hmm. And so later, this is when I realized this about the why word. I went home and I thought, how could I have asked that in a way that I could have communicated to that person that I was genuinely wanted them to share what their thinking was. Um, and that's when I, I came up with this idea of, you know, saying instead saying, um, how did you make that decision? Or what did, what were, what were the what were the thoughts prior to that decision? What did you see? What did you notice that that um, made you do it that way? And I, I really like that way of thinking too. Like what what not not necessarily like saying what caused you to do that, but what was your mindset when you were going through that particular process? Um, you know, even as a student, um, I think students are kind of taught, sort of low key taught to just not ask why the way that they're supposed to. So if they see a preceptor or if they see somebody perform a skill and it's new to them, I'm not sure that they're really taught to ask like, okay, well, why did we do it this way and not the other way? I think they're kind of taught just to accept it as it is. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's, it's an important way to look at things. So when we talk about giving feedback, um, 
and we talked about positive feedback and, and negative feedback, but do you feel that they're equally important? Do you feel that um, positive feedback is just as important as negative feedback? Or how, how do you think as an educator, we should balance those two? Well, I can tell you um, one thing that came up in this pre-conference class is that they they called out this me- this method that we often do, and people call it, I think, a, a shit sandwich, <laughs> <laughs> where you give them positive feedback, you give them negative feedback, and then you finish with positive feedback. Oh, that's a, yeah, that's a really old method of doing things. Yeah, the, it's a the, really the, the old method. Sandwich, yeah. Yeah, the compliment sandwich. Maybe we should call it that. <laughs> I, shit sandwich sounds more entertaining. but <laughs> People, adults, know what you're doing when you do that. So um, I wouldn't use that formula. It feels disingenuous. Right. It comes across kind of as condescending because you you know what, what kind of feedback you're going to give. So it comes, mm-hmm. it comes across as like, I think you did a great job, you know, getting out of the ambulance. Um <laughs> You didn't do so great on the intubation, and you also did a great job uh, calling the doctor. And it's like it's fine, but it, like I said, it's it's a disingenuous thing. Um, so, one, and one of the things that you had mentioned was talking about the process to the student. Where if you have someone who they just started their clinical time, let's say you know they're whatever fifty hours in, it's like okay, so where you're at, you're doing a great job. You know, you did a really great job starting the IV. You know what? We didn't quite get, you know, whatever the drug calculations, you didn't get the intubation, but with where you are, you did X, Y, and Z properly. Um, and that's something to be praised. Next time we can work on, you know, A, B, and C. And I, I've incorporated positive feedback into, like we run scenarios where we'll have one student doing the scenario and the rest of the um, students are just kind of on the team and they might be doing little small tasks, but generally they're just kind of watching. And so I, in that instance, we give public feedback. So the other four team members are hearing the feedback to the one leader. And I'll point out the good things that the student did because I want to make sure to reinforce positive things that they may be doing, um, not just for self-esteem, but because I want to highlight it for the rest of the learners. Like, you know, did you notice how they did this? That's great. Keep doing that. Um, it's It really isn't about stroking their ego. It's like, great, don't lose that. You've just did something well. Do that. Do it that way every time. Right. Um, because sometimes they don't realize they've done something well. or So maybe it is some of it is stoking their ego, though, to remind them, like, we're growing. Like, things are moving in the right direction. And I think that's that's a very difficult thing for a lot of students. And it's I know it's something that I'm I'm presently experiencing, um, and it's something that I went through in EMT and medic school, where, you know, appreciating the day by day is very difficult to do. And you know, three months later, you're like, oh well, actually, turns out I know stuff, which is it, it's a good feeling three months later, but it might not be the best of sensations when you're actually you know in day four. Um, you know, and that's it's a difficult thing. But you had mentioned teaching by the bedside. Um, is this something where if you have a, like during a call, when you have a student performing a skill and you say, okay, we're going to do this differently, or is it a skill that you're performing and showing a student kind of at the same time, um, whatever the skill is, whether it's IV starts, intubation. And I know we go back to intubation and IV starts a lot, but they're common. Um, Mm -hmm. So is that, do you feel like that's a useful tool or should pretty much a lot of the teaching just be done, you know, before and after a call goes on? Mm, I think it needs to happen during the call 
as long as what you're balancing is uh, the needs of the patient in that ex- in that moment. So as long as it's not inf- infringing on the kind of emotional needs of the patient, like if you have a really anxious patient or something like that, right. um, that can get a little precarious. But in general, the more quickly you can give feedback, the better, it, particularly with psychomotor skills, like prompt feedback and to not allow them to do an IV like technique, like threading the catheter, doing something like in a psychomotor way incorrectly, it's dangerous to allow them to perform it incorrectly because they are laying down a neural network that you want to grow in the right direction. And so um, as far as bedside teaching of psychomotor skills, I'm pretty heavy with feedback and we'll talk them through it and um, be kind of giving continuous either correction or reassurance. And that's that's we know that from from science that you can lay down those neurons incorrectly, mm-hmm. and they just kind of get that muscle memory, and then it's really hard to clip them or, or unlearn those bad habits. Surely you're not suggesting we apply evidence to our education. No, <laughs> let's not get crazy. No, I wouldn't do that. It's, it's crazy talk. So, but ta- as far as giving, but as far as giving feedback for, for assessment. I will let them kind of flounder around a little bit because assessment is a little bit more fluid and we have a chance. Assessment is um, the neural network's completely different, right? You're not just creating one pathway. It's very global, fluid, like a lot of connections in there. And I want to allow them some time to think. So, and that's something that I, and we have a lot of stuff to talk to, but I want to kind of deviate from what we we had discussed prior to the show but when you talk about assessments being fluid i think that and it, again this is my experience this is just things that i've seen anecdotally i think when we're teaching skills assessment or assessment skills rather we have you know the the rubric that gets put out by organizations like national registry which and this isn't coming down on registry um but if they don't if the student doesn't adhere specifically to that script we, you know, points get knocked off or we'll say that they're fit. They failed an assessment station for it. So if you're, I guess, running an organization, what would be a way to approach changing that teaching method? If you have, you know, educators who say they have to do it this way, you know, it has to be these, the first six steps, and then they have to, you know, um, do the six steps and then ABC and then make a <laughs> diagnosis or whatever field impression, and then go through sample and OPQRST and like that. How, as educators, how can we get our teams on board to say, you know what, we're going to see changes, people are going to do it differently, and there's really nothing wrong with them doing it differently? Right. So we do have to allow for those style point, uh, style points, and I've gotten to see this when I do clinical rotations. I'll see physicians come in and do assessments, and they are, you know, they're all over <laughs> the the place in style, Right. Right. Some do the physical exam while they're talking. Some talk and then do the physical exam. And at the end of the, you know, five to 10 minutes, they've got the same amount of, they've got the same info. And so it really, both are correct. The skill sheets, once you're down the line, like where you are in your level of expertise, it's hard for you to remember that maybe at the beginning you did need that. And so I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not someone who absolutely hates you know, the, the, an assessment on a piece of paper, because I think it's the beginning of a framework. They have to have some type of framework to begin creating the mental model. And some things are time need to be time prioritized. And we need to know that they're thinking about hemorrhage before they are thinking about 
um, pupils, you know, these types of things. And so some bit of structure is really, really useful. And then as they start to grow, you just ideally start pulling that piece of paper away from them and you start to see it becoming more of an art mm-hmm. instead of a science. A science. But your, to your original question, you said if I could... What did you say? If I was in charge of a program? If I know that you, I know you are, (laughs) if if you were to run, I guess the question was if, if you have a, a team that's, um, we'll say less agreeable to changing the way they teach, how would you approach changing, I guess the mindset or the, um, the culture of that team? So it's, you cracked up at the beginning. You cracked up at the I'm beginning sorry. of that. But I'm really curious about the question because I don't think I've been asked this one before. So, so if, I want to hear it. If you're if you were in a position where you have an organization and the educators that you're working with um, aren't, we'll say, progressive or they're not agreeable to the type of change you're trying to institute, how would you go about, I guess, getting a team on board to say we're going to start? Say you're introducing, um, you know, evidence-based medicine or a journal club um, into a paramedic class. And you have, you know, say people who have been teaching for 35 years and they're not particularly agreeable to that. How or or what advice would you have for people who are in that situation who are trying to get everybody on board to kind of move a program forward? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's the best answer. It's great. (laughs) I mean, aren't we all in that? scenario at times, you know, and and your, your fundamental question is how to motivate people to change. And, um, you, you definitely have to let them keep their dignity and express your value for what they do bring, right? They bring, um, the value of kind of the historical perspective and, um, but yeah, everything you're asking about is like how to run a team and how to lead a team. And that's, yeah, there's no direct answer for it. (laughs) That's a tough one, (laughs) right? How do we, I think role modeling is probably the most passive way to do it. Like show your excitement Mm -hmm. about something. Um, They'll notice that the students are kind of all sticking around and talking to you after class, you know, that works. I'll take that. That's not an answer, but it's, it's, it's fine. It's one of the best non answers I've gotten. (laughs) (laughs) So when you're talk to me about um, fluency versus mastery, um, as far as if, if you're a student, if you're learning, um, and I guess also if you're teaching as well, is there a difference between the two of them? Um, and, and and what do you think about them? And this is all derived from a, from Peter, right, so Peter Brown's book, a, Make It Stick, is what you were talking about. Right. This is a, um, a reference from Make It Stick, which is a great book. If you're an educator, or, or actually it's really built for learners, it's how to learn information. Um how to master information. And Peter Brown in that book talks about how reading material, let's say you're studying like you in med school, like if you're just like, hey, you, there's this am- amount of information you've got to transfer from the book to your brain. Um, the recommendations from Peter Brown are to not do what most of us do, which is just to read it, maybe highlight it, read it a, the paragraph a couple of times. He says that that doesn't make it stick in there and that while you're reading it, maybe the third time you've read the paragraph, you feel like you've mastered it, but it's just because you've gotten some fluency with it. Like you're just like, oh yeah, I've seen those words. Yep. I've read that sentence. Got it. But it doesn't store in long-term memory. The way to store it in long-term memory is through little short, um, 
kind of manipulating the info in short while it's in your working memory. So you read about it. It's sitting there in your short-term working memory. Working memory is like a special part of short-term memory. It's sitting there, and then you quiz yourself about it, or you talk to another person about it, and you try to explain it to them. And the second you start trying to explain it, you'll realize where your holes are in the knowledge. Then you're then you're more interested in it when you when it's time to go back and read it. Um, you go, oh, where where was that one part that I couldn't remember? And then you go read it with much more interest than just rereading, rereading, rereading. Then you put it away again try to explain it again. Um, and this kind of, it's called effortful retrieval. We're retrieving from the working memory and that's what solidifies it into concrete long-term memory. So if you're going through a program, it would be, say you're going through a cardiac and you need to, you have to recall cardiac circulation. Um, and does this, there's, there's kind of a, um, I guess an old uh, anecdote, I guess, for, you know, see one, do one, teach one. Um, and this kind of fits into that model where you, you know, will read about cardiac circulation and then draw it out and then explain to a colleague, this is how it works. And then, you know, trying to work as a team to get down that idea. Um, as far as active retrieval, um, or effort for retrieval is concerned, how does what's called interleaving, um, kind of work into that equation? So interleaving is a word. Um, that Peter Brandt also used and he it goes along with his idea of spaced repetition and it interleaving and spaced repetition are the recommendations for how to um, use the time available for you to study so let's say you have five days to study for a test or five days to learn how to start IVs the recommendation would be to use both interleaving and space repetition. Space repetition is what it sounds like. You're just spacing out your practice sessions. So um, instead of doing one 10-hour day, you would use those five days and maybe do two two hours each day, right? Mm -hmm. Just spacing it out over time. So you can get some sleep cycles between all that practice. Sleep seems to be really important we, to we integrating work, knowledge. We, but we work in EMS. We can't sleep. <laughs> no, no, no. You need to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Um, interleaving means you go back and forth between, and I've explained this poorly in the talking teaching, um, episode that I released. I explained it poorly. So this is my redemption, my chance for redemption. <laughs> interleaving, interleaving means you practice one thing and then you walk away from that one thing and go practice something else completely different. And this could be didactic textbook knowledge or skills. It doesn't matter. Using skills, again, as a reference, you practice IVs, you walk away from that table, you go over here, you practice NG-tube, and the magic happens when you go back to the IV to practice again. That's when, you, again, you're retrieving and you're putting it back into the working memory because you had already flushed it out of the working memory. Now you're bringing it back into the working memory. Um, and that's there seems to be some secret sauce in that of the going back and forth between two things. That's interleaving or two or multiple, multiple things. Leaving. It doesn't have to be two. And yeah. that that was something it, I was interested to hear you talk about that because that was something that I was only recently exposed to. And I I have a phenomenally short attention span. Um, you know, I'm I'm the dog from up where you see a squirrel and then you just kind of run over there. So the interleaving thing I found was really helpful because if you know, and there, there's different studies like that where they talk, you know, okay, we'll study for 50 minutes, um, get up, walk away for 10 minutes, 50 minutes, come back. 
And that was just keeping my attention on one thing for 50 minutes at a time um, became really labor intensive for me. Um, and I found around like minute 40, I started kind of timing myself saying like, all right, well, I have to do this for 10 more minutes, which became more distracting. So, and, and I know I've, I've spoken in, you know, outside of the show, obviously to a bunch of people who they kind of experienced that too. So for me, I found that like 30 minute blocks with, you know, five or 10 minute breaks was a lot more effective for me where it's like, you know what? I can do 30 minutes. Like you can do anything for a half hour, right? Right. So you do it for a half hour, get up you know, go do whatever for five or 10. And then usually I would come back to a different topic and then kind of like, I'm going to cycle through five things today. And then that's kind of how I did it. And I found that for me, I, I had a lot more retention that way. Um, as opposed to sitting and just reading a book for four hours and, you know, hoping that the stuff kind of sticks in my head. Right. Right. So when, when you're actually giving a presentation, um, or a lecture. One of the things that you had mentioned in one of your shows was, and I have the quote here, which I, I liked it. It's so much easier to give a lecture and hope they picked it up along the way. Um, I, and that's something that I, just in giving presentations and classes that I've given, that's exactly how I felt. We're like, I am going to tell you this stuff and I hope you understand it. Um, but like, uh, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. So if you're talking to a class, you say like, this is what I hope you understand. Um, how do we get them to kind of retain that information a little bit better, especially if we're in a context where you're just talking to them at a conference or in a class, and then that's the last time you're going to see them? Ask me that last sentence again, because it cracked up. Sorry. So if you're, if you're teaching a class, is there a way to get them to hold on to the information or to get the information if that's the only time you're going to see them, aside from just telling them to take notes? Or are there better ways? Can we be, I guess the real question I want to be asking is, can we be giving classes or presentations in a better way than just standing up on a stage and talking at, you know, however many people for a half hour. So the conference one, I haven't figured out yet. I've only given a few conference talks and I've done, I'm, it's something I'm actively working on right now because I realized I am just talking. They could just watch it on YouTube if they wanted. There's no added pre added benefit from us being present in the same room. Right. And that's something I need to work on. The classroom teaching I've been doing for over a decade. And these are a couple of the, I can give you a couple of things that I do to gauge kind of their understanding of the information and for them to do some of their own self-evaluation of like, am I getting this? Mm -hmm. The first one is I'll talk about something and then I'll ask, you know, just anyone, can somebody say back to me what I've just said, but in your own words? And that has the added benefit of one, like they know they might, I might be calling them out, like I need to engage but then the added benefit of sometimes a student will say it in a way that's more relatable to the other students than the way I said it. Um, they put better words to it or different words, just different words. Um, and so that it has the, I get to kind of gauge their understanding. The other thing I use are little tiny whiteboards, little eight by 10 whiteboards. I, um, I just bring them to every class and occasionally I'll have them kind of write down or draw a picture or something of what I've been talking about. Now y'all draw a picture of a hemothorax and we'll talk about, you know, okay, you know, we talked about the fact that the fluid is dependent. So if you drew the blood up on, you know, high and the person's sitting up, that means they didn't get that piece of knowledge, right? right. So through, through drawing things, I've really become interested in illustration and how, um, it's a great way to, to, um, use that creative side of your brain and then also really understand if somebody's got it or not. I, and I, I love that idea. I like the idea of having, you know, small groups of students just kind of go over the information they were just presented. Um, 
Real quick, can you talk to me about learning styles? I know there's some conflicting data on if people are visual, auditory, or hands-on learners. Is that valid? Is there kind of a is the reality sort of a mix between the three, or do we just kind of not know how people learn and we're just figuring out now? I'm so glad you asked this question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Learning styles, um, we originally thought what was meant by that was that each individual had one learning style. So you would say, I'm a visual learner. I'm a kinesthetic learner. I'm an auditory learner. Um, What it really comes down to, a better way to say that is that learners have a preference. You know, they have something that they enjoy more. But we are all, all of them. We can all learn through all um, mechanisms. Of course, we all, humans are very visual, for sure. You know, we want that visual input, but yet you have these podcasts where people can just listen and learn too. Um, so you, it is true that learning styles are a myth. If you think that each individual only has one style, we're just a combination of them all. Mm -hmm. And so it's nice if your presentations can incorporate all three elements or your, not just presentations, but your educational kind of approach incorporates all three kind of senses so, and that's, that's one of those things that came out in educational literature where they're like, well, there's three different learning styles. There you go. That's all it is. And that's so fun, right? <laughs> Cause it, like, what a tidy topic. We can just like put little bullet points and be done with right. it. Well, and it's very easy as a learner too. You can say like, oh, well it doesn't work for me cause I'm not a visual learner, you know? And like right. <clears throat> for me, I, I, it's easier for me to hear something, um, and kind of take it from there than it is, you know, to read through a PowerPoint. So I, I, I get that difference. Um, and again, can I, was, I, I go ahead. Can I interject to one thing there? Yeah. Um, you said it's easier for you to listen than going through PowerPoints. Mm -hmm. One word of caution. I don't, um, want to get preachy about presentations. Please do. Please do. One thing to know about (laughs) (laughs) one thing I've learned, um, is that it was, it was taught to me and I realized I was doing it all wrong was I was having a slideshow presentation that had tons of words on it. And then I was also talking and it is humanly impossible to both read a slide, read all those words and be taking in the words I was saying, the audio that um, matched that visual. Mm -hmm. And so I have um, removed the bulk of the words from all of my slides and the slide just serves as a decoration, if you will. Right. It's a nice side background. Right. So if you have... PowerPoints are great for outlining info and you can do that and provide it to the student as a handout, but it is not an effective way to present that info. And something that I've seen um, now in a lot of presentations, especially um, Corey Slovis out of Vanderbilt does this a lot, where if there's more than five points on your slide, you might as well just get rid of the slide because there's no, whatever's on there is not going to be absorbed. And one of the things that makes me cringe is I've seen PowerPoint slides that have a paragraph of information on it and the presenter is reading the paragraph that's on the slide, which at that point, like I, I could have done this from home. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it, it's not a, a particularly effective um, teaching or learning tool. I don't think. Um, you, so, you, you put the learner in a position where they have to pick. They're either going to listen to you or they're going to read. Yeah. And it has to be one or the other. It's not going to be, it's not going to be both. Um, we, so we had talked previously, um, and just getting back to student stress, um, talk to me a little bit about what auditory exclusion is and 
how that might actually affect a student learning information or I guess absorbing information? Well, this goes back to the, you know, is the feedback, is it the right time to give feedback? Um, students can be in such a heightened stress level that they, we all actually all humans can be in, experiencing so much, such a strong stress response. It has to be pretty strong, but you can get um, what's called auditory exclusion where you, the first thing that will shut down is our hearing and we'll just really get hypervisual and they'll kind of get tunnel visioned um, and they can't hear your feedback very well. And so after a high stakes test, if I've just told them they didn't pass, that's all it's, we're done. It's already done, right? Yeah. And so I may follow up with them with an email that said, you know, these are the three points um, to work on for next time. This is where things fell short or this was good. Keep doing this and give it to them in written form so they can digest it later at home and like kind of the safety of their own space. Yeah, and I think that's again, that's important where if you like directly after a cardiac arrest, especially one that's run a very long time, is not the time you want to pull over a student and explain like, you know, this A, B, and C is what you did wrong, and this is what we can do better next time, because it's not something that they're going to pick up on. Um, two more things I want to go over, and then uh, we'll start to wrap it up. The one thing is there's some debate in EMS about how long a paramedic program should be. Um, I've already talked about this a couple times. So what are your views on how long a medic program should be, and are we teaching the medics, I guess, long enough? Are we spending enough time with them in the classroom and in the field? Yeah, this is a, a kind of a hot topic, especially right now, it seems. Um, my personal mission, like what I'm hoping to do in my career is to educate medics to go out and have job satisfaction. I want them to be happy at work. And what I'm seeing right now is that medics are not happy at work. And I think it's a multifold, you know, reason. I think it's stressful work. I think they work long hours, but the part that I can be responsible for is preparing them. And I think their lack of preparation is hurting them psychologically. I think they go out and really suffer through those first year or two. Um, I think, you know, I think it contributes to burnout more than we realize that they, their abilities aren't matched to their demands. That's a known source of stress. Is, um, it elicits, elicits a stress response when your demands exceed your resources. And so, my preference would be to educate them um, to the associate's degree or bachelor's degree level. So they've got two years of two to four years of um, time to kind of ease into this. Because as we said at the beginning of the conversation, this is not an easy job. This right. isn't a technician. Uh, these are not technician skills. We're not working on plumbing. Um, this is high emotion. It's very nuanced. It's, it's clinical reasoning. Um, it takes a good bit of judgment and, um, I think it takes time to develop those skills. So, and just one last thing, um, when it comes to teaching the medic students and things like that, just give a little bit of point about the, I guess the neuroscience behind muscle memory, how that actually works. So we had talked about space repetition. We've talked about, um, you know, interleaving and things like that. So if I'm teaching and that's a lot of academic stuff, right? So if I'm teaching things from a textbook or things from a presentation, so if I want to teach someone I guess the proper way of intubating, the proper way of starting an IV, how does that actually work in their mind? Um, and how do I get that information to stick? So your brain is constantly growing and remolding. And we kind of, we don't appreciate that about our brains because it's not visible. You appreciate it about your muscles and your skin. You know, we can see the efforts that we put into those two organs, but the brain 
the effort we put into growing the brain is not visible. And so some people think of it as being closed up in the cranium and it's just fixed, right? It's not, um, pl- it's not plastic, <laughs> but if you could there. see it, it just kind of sits there. But if you could see it on a, a microscopic level or a molecular level, you could see how these neurons are constantly reaching out and growing new connections or being clipped back when they aren't used, right? And so that's, that's the neuroscience is that you're growing neurons. And so um, with muscle memory, through repetition of doing something correctly, you can kind of, once you've done it a certain amount of time, a certain number of repetitions, you can just kind of spark the beginning of that, you know, the first neuron and everything just fires downstream without this kind of conscious thought. Mm-hmm. And we know this um, because we can we can experience it in our own personal lives and there, there's also science behind it. Um, there's some, there's a funny anecdote that I, I shared at the, the conference of we used to teach IV starts and one semester we got well we still teach IV start but one <laughs> semester we got one semester we got kind of lazy and you know the little mannequin arm that just kind of lays there it's just like a dismembered right, arm yeah. mm-hmm. we would make the student has to say you know what you know hi my name's Ginger Locke what's your name and to the arm and one semester we just kept saying you know my name's Mr. Arm and so. <laughs> They did that like 50 to 100 times, and then we went to clinical, and the student's starting an IV on a person, a little bit stressful environment, and they basically muscle memory kicked kicked in because they're under a little bit of stress. They've just, they're going to do whatever they've automated. They're going to, there's a saying about that, like they're going to fall to their level of training, right. not rise to the expectations. Yep. And the student, the student said, okay, Mr. Arm, you know, I'm going to start an IV on you, <laughs> and that's my bad. That's my bad. That's the educator's fault, not the student's fault. Uh, but that's the power of automating these neurons. Right. They just fire. They're 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 set. My my favorite part of that story is Mr. Arm sounds like a Bond villain. <laughs> 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 All right. So that's that's a a lot. Um, I I really do hope that people will keep listening to this um, for that space repetition. This is Ginger Locke from the Medic Mindset Podcast. Um, it's a great show. Everything we talked about is going to be in the show notes. Ginger, thanks so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. It was really fun. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again to Ginger Locke for joining us on the show today. Again, we went over a lot of different stuff. There's a lot to absorb. It's one of the best things about podcasting in general um, when it comes to space repetition and education. Lots of stuff that you can listen to over and over and over again. So let us know what you think. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We're at over on EMS on Twitter and over on Productions everywhere else. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else that you get your podcasts. Let us know what you think. How is teaching going for you? What advice do you guys have for how to teach and how to change the way we're teaching? Check us out over on productions at gmail.com or leave a comment on the website at overrunproductions.com. Um, let us know what you think. This is an important topic and it's something that I think we don't talk about enough. And uh, working together, we can kind of change the way that we teach our EMTs and our medics. So once again, for the Overrun Podcast, my name is Ed Bowder. Thanks for listening and we will talk to you next time.